Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Just Mercy. Just Mercy was written by Brian Stevenson and was published in 2014. And the film adaptation directed by Destin Daniel Cretton. Uh, came out in 2020. This is a really exciting uh, episode for us. We're really excited to do this one. Just Mercy is nonfiction. It's a memoir um, about Brian Stevenson, who is a lawyer, you know, advocating for people on death row and people who have been like wrongly accused of crimes and also just trying to find justice for the poor and um, the subjugated. But even though it is a memoir, it's more of kind of like a nonfiction story kind of a history yeah it's kind of this amalgamation of like you know it doesn't really go much into his personal life no uh it does follow mostly the case of uh walter mcmillan Mm -hmm. but it also kind of those chapters are interspersed with other chapters on different cases he was working on at the time covering different topics uh that you know either about specifically the death penalty or more about just mass incarceration, or mm-hmm. who it uh, targets. So it is an interesting, kind of hard to uh, label book. Yeah. Which I appreciate. Yes. So it was a good read. Mm-hmm. And I was so, I was really excited to read this one and excited that it was being turned in into a movie. Uh, Michael B. Jordan. Jamie Foxx, yes. Brie Larson mm-hmm. uh, as a feisty character, like always for her. <laughs> so I was I was really excited about this one. Yeah, it has a great cast. And it's so important to have movies like this made, you know, to yes. draw attention. Like, I'm so glad this book was written mm-hmm. and I'm so glad they made a movie out of it because the more attention that these types of stories get, the better. Absolutely. So let's jump into it in terms of... Uh, When the movie begins, we are introduced to Walter as a character. Mm -hmm. He was a he was a logger. He kind of owned his own business, which uh, was, you know, pretty significant in his community as a black man to be independent and, you know, running his own operation, be financially independent. Mm -hmm. And so we see him doing his job out in the outdoors which I really loved knowing where the story goes Yes, to see him in kind of nature and an open space mm-hmm. for the contrast we would be getting later. Yeah, it's the 80s also to set the stage in Alabama. It is, which is wild because, I mean, I know things are more, can be more um, racist down south, not to generalize or stereotype, but yeah. um, between laws and the way certain people... Uh, behave in certain communities, things can feel more uh, regressive back down there. Yeah. But when this book started and I was reading it, I kind of forgot when it took place. (laughs) And in my head, it felt like the 50s or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? In the Jim Crow South. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. And I had to like remind myself, I'm like, wait, what? What year is this currently? And I was like, this is the late 80s. Yeah. You know? And I mean... The amount of just bullshit going on, both like within the community towards uh, the black members of the community and within the judicial system, it's like horrendous to think about how it was just before you and I were born. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's it's, it's really shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Walter, um, you know, is pretty well known in the community and through his business and just, you know, among people. And one day while driving home, 
in the movie, we see he gets stopped at a roadblock mm-hmm. and they are specifically there for him to arrest him. Yeah. And he's clearly like in the movie, very confused and is like, I have no idea what's going on. Why are you arresting me? What's happening? Yeah. So it's a really good kind of teaser for like, what the hell's even going on? Like, what's, you know, who mm-hmm. is this guy and what's happening? Yeah. And meanwhile, we meet a young Brian Stevenson. He is a Harvard law student at this point. And it's interesting in the book, he talks a lot about going to law school and wanting to help people who are disadvantaged and be an advocate for them in the criminal justice mm-hmm. system, but feeling very separated from the work that he's doing in school. Yeah, he talked about like in classes, they're talking about these really abstract concepts of like you know not just justice but like ethics and like yeah stuff that we don't understand and he was just like he felt he was really doubting being there for a law degree because he's like i don't know if this is for me this is so yeah like conceptual and just like not what i want to do he really wanted to connect with people and help them in a direct way yeah but luckily, he did get uh, an internship mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I guess it technically is what it was with an organization. The it, Southern Poverty Defense Committee, I think. Yeah. In uh, the South. And so uh, he got to work with people more directly. It was an organization that, like, did not earn a lot of money. You know, like, the, the lawyers who worked there, you know, weren't living the wealthy lifestyles of yes. uh, powerful attorneys. They were, you know, really barely scraping by, really yeah. overworked. But their work to uh, Brian mattered. Yeah. And with this internship, he goes to death row for the first time. Mm-hmm. And we see this episode played out in the movie as well, where, you know, he's very nervous. Uh, it's his first time going to death row and talking to an inmate that, is waiting to hear if he'll die soon. And he's there to deliver the news that, um, I don't have any updates about your case, but I can tell you that there won't be an execution date for you this year. And it's funny because to Brian, this is not good news. Yeah, it's just like neutral. It's just like, well, you won't die this year. Uh, Sorry, don't know what'll happen after that. But to this inmate, it's the best news that he's heard in a long time. Yeah, he's kind of emotionally overcome uh, by hearing this and just like so happy um, to receive this news. And it really throws Brian off, um, you know, hearing his response. And we we see this in the movie as well. They actually sit down and start talking and just chatting. Yeah. And Brian's really surprised by like how much they have in common. They're mm-hmm. like the same age. They come from similar backgrounds, grew up in, you know, similar churches and, are just kind of like sharing their experiences. And this was like a really uh, significant moment, I think, in his life where creating this contrast for him of like, this guy is on death row, but he's, he saw- Just an ordinary person. Yeah, and he could see himself in him a little bit. And like, you know, this isn't right. Like, there's no way that this should be allowed. And this kind of like really gave him uh, kind of a focus in what he wanted to do with his law degree. Yeah. And in the movie, we see him back at home. Uh, He grew up in Delaware talking with his family because he's planning to move down to Alabama and to continue working with 
um, people on death row and people who, you know, need justice, need legal representation. Um, And we have a scene where his mom is kind of opposed to him going because she's worried about him. And the movie focuses a lot on the fact that uh, even though Brian grew up in Delaware, which is technically the South, that people in the South kind of view that as the North. Yeah. And that he's like a Harvard guy Mm -hmm. and kind of like coming down to the South and this very like North versus South yeah. way of thinking. And once again, she's like warning him, like, you have to watch out for yourself. People are going to be after you for what you're trying to do. Like, you know, help death row inmates who are going to be predominantly black. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're going to be facing a lot of things I don't think you're prepared for. And once again, this is like, what is this the 60s? Like, yeah, or something, I know. You know right? what I mean? Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's the late 80s. And yeah. But so he kind of takes her, you know, he takes her, you know, just says, thank you. But like, I I really need to do this. Mm -hmm. And I I was curious, too, because like I was reading about how the director of this movie, who also co-wrote it, really did work closely with Brian Stevenson on it. Mm -hmm. And I am curious, like the things that weren't included in the book that are in addition, like maybe how much of it is is true or real or like accurate to his life. And I mean, we talk about this a little bit. Um, not too long ago at the beginning of the episode, but there's not a lot about Brian in this book. No, no. And there's a little more of him in the movie, but I've heard some um, criticism of the movie kind of saying like the character of Brian Stevenson is just sort of like this hero (laughs) and he doesn't really have anything like that he's going through or that he's dealing with. And I think it's because of the tone of the book. Well, yeah, and it, it is, I agree with you because, like, it's funny, you don't want to, like, you don't want to make Brian Stevenson out to be, like, this, like, Christ-like figure almost because no. he, he comes across as being so self-sacrificing and pure and, like, yeah. and I don't want to make him sound like he doesn't have his own issues or his own problems or anything, but, like, hearing him talk and just reading what he's done in this book, I mean, it's hard to not make him out that way. I mean, I know. <laughs> you, you know what I, it's like, yeah. it's hard not to convey him in that regard because I mean, he just comes across as being such a genuinely good self-sacrificing person. Yeah. So it's funny to hear like some criticisms of the movie and be like, he's like too perfect. And you're like, I mean, where is the lie though? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like, well, and also, I mean, I think that's, an unfair criticism too, because there is a movie formula or structure uh, where the main character is not the one who goes through an arc. Yeah. And instead, and and there's a great video I should link to it on our, on our Patreon because it talks about how the, the role of that character is to change the people around him. Yeah. And that the arcs come from those people. And the in, supporting characters. Yes. And in this story, I really think it's uh, McMillan, who is kind of like grows to like have faith again in the system. Not faith in the system, but... Um, hope. Hope. Yes. Thank you. Like mm-hmm. instilling that hope in him. And uh, Brian's character in the film does go through trials. Yeah. But it's not really so much his character that evolves but the people around him and hopefully the system around him and things like that so yeah i i I think that's kind of an unfair it seems like something people like want to poke at 
be like, oh, that's a flaw, but it's not really, you know? And it does go back to the fact that this book, even though it is a memoir, it's not really, not in the way that we think of memoirs now. No. As very, like, internally investigative and, like, someone kind of dealing through their shit and talking about, like, the things that they've gone through in their life. Brian really uses this book as, yes, it's a story of, like, his, it's a story of his work and, like, his kind of, like, life's mission, And then the work that, you know, he has done in the past. And he kind of uses it as a way to talk about, like, the failures of the criminal justice system, you know, the failures of society and, you know, the problems of racism and and so many other things. So this book, I don't think, was ever meant to really be that type of memoir. No, not at all. Absolutely not. The translation to film, I think... It it carries that tone still, and it and the book equally focuses on Walter too, if not yeah. more, yeah, on ter- on like his characterization and his background and like what he went through. So you know, once like you said, not a traditional memoir in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to the story. Back to the story. <laughs> so Brian uh, goes down to Alabama to Montgomery. And establishes the Equal Justice Initiative. Yeah. And this is a nonprofit um, that would receive government funding to provide legal assistance to um, people on death row, people who don't have um, anyone to represent them. Yeah. Um, And he founds this organization um, with help from Eva Ansley. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so... Another interesting fact is that, like, she's not very prominent in the book at all. No. Uh, There were actually other assistant lawyers who came about more. I get wanting to just, like, have one kind of side character that helps him throughout and is kind of more prominent. And I also can't help but wonder if the director really just wanted to include Brie Larson. He's like, I need a role for Brie Larson. It's She's got to have a southern accent <laughs> and a really bad perm. <laughs> it's a sassy. It's it's a she's a strong willed, yes. uh, you know, woman with a lot of sassy, sassy southern lady, <laughs> sassy southern lady. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is just like Brie Larson's like she just fits in there like a puzzle piece. It is perfect. Although I did read more about uh, Eva and she still works for the Equal Justice Initiative and has worked there for since its inception. Oh, yeah. In fact, I do think the one of the closing shots of like the real life people did include her. I think it did say that now that I think back to that. Yeah. So I think she really was instrumental in helping Brian Stevenson found this organization. And I think I mean, she was the she's the director of operations. She's been there like ever since it started. So I think she really is an in- integral part of this. Yes, absolutely. Um, but she wasn't mentioned a lot in the book. No, no. In fact, when it mentioned her at one point, I kind of forgot when she was introduced or who she was. Yeah. I was kind of like, wait, and I'd like flip back and I was like, who is this? <laughs> uh, so they established this. They do run into some problems early on with like finding a building to work out of. Mm-hmm. And they actually work out of her home for a while. Yeah. And he quickly takes on multiple death row inmate cases. Mm -hmm. And it's worth noting, too, that, like, even though Walter's case is, like, one where he was falsely accused, like, completely. Yeah. That's not really their focus by any means. Like, they're really just helping anyone who's on death row, whether they were guilty or innocent. Mm -hmm. And it's not about the innocent or guilty for the Equal Justice Initiative. It's about making sure everyone has a fair trial. Yeah. And, you know, is given a punishment that you know, is just, but also merciful, uh, Mm -hmm. like the title. Uh (laughs) Um, But in many of the cases that 
Brian Stevenson and his organization represent. Um, many of these people had originally lawyers that didn't care, mm-hmm. didn't um, present any evidence, encouraged their clients to plead guilty, didn't give them the reality of what would happen if they did. You know, uh, juries were kind of selected to only include white people. Yeah, even after it became law that they couldn't do that, yeah. they like found workarounds and ways of still, you know, forcing that, you know, into trials, like almost nearly all white juries. Yes. And so like all of these issues, you know, just created situations where it was like unwinnable for these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and just so many factors. And the book, this is, you know, the book really gets into these aspects of the judicial system that are flawed. Yeah. And one of them, you know, being jury selection. And yeah. it's very enlightening and interesting. It, it does focus a lot on Alabama specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alabama does seem to have a lot of like America as a whole. Yes. Bad. America sucks in general to all of our international listeners. Yes. Who are like, what the fuck? <laughs> it, we, we are with you. It is just baffling the system is very broken but, but alabama in particular but alabama like really sucks <laughs> <laughs> sorry to any listeners in alabama but <laughs> no um it is a widespread problem throughout the u.s but pennsylvania I came know. up multiple times too where we live yeah and it did not fare very well it did well not either. come up in a good way <laughs> no it did not so we're we're with you alabama it is not good <laughs> yeah so let's talk so it in the film he's meeting with these uh uh, different death row inmates getting their story and in the film this is where we do get snippets of getting this explanation of like how difficult the process is for a lot of them and how they have no legal representation yeah and how they were screwed over in their original like sentencings and trials yeah and this is where he meets walter mm-hmm. and walter is it we should you know talk right now about the differences between walter in the film and in real life. Yeah. Because uh, when he met Walter in real life, Walter was immediately adamant, listen, I didn't do the crime they're accusing me of. And you yeah. need to know that. He was quickly like seeking help, looking for Brian and uh, for, you know, legal counsel and, you know, adamant about his innocence. Yeah. In the film, uh, Walter's played by Jamie Foxx very well. Yes. By the way. And but when we meet him, he's more broken. Yes. And he's very kind of distrustful of Brian Stevenson. And this is where this whole like uh, northern boy, like yes. Harvard educated kind of comes in where Walter's kind of like, you don't know what it's like down here. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think this is a change that feels appropriate. It does. Because Walter, um, you know, he, he Jamie Foxx is playing the person in real life, but he's also playing like an embodiment of a lot of different things yes that are you know a lot of what inmates must feel uh, a lot of the problems with the system Mm -hmm. because even though walter wasn't on death row that long so many other people who brian talks to have been yes and have kind of like lost hope or like you know have felt aimless in terms of how they can help themselves Mm -hmm. so you know this is one of those changes that feels appropriate Yeah, and he's also really hesitant um, for Brian to represent him. He talks about having a lawyer previously that didn't do anything and just took his money, et cetera, et cetera. And it's sort of like, he's sort of like, prove to me Mm -hmm. that you're going to be different. Exactly. And so Brian is able to go back, 
review the case, actually look at it closely, and talks to uh, Walter's family mm-hmm. and quickly uncovers enough. He doesn't even uncover the full story yet, but he uncovers enough to know this trial was fucked and there were a lot of things going on with it. And Walter, like, I can't believe they convicted him mm-hmm. on the small amount of evidence that they had. And in the sake of clarity, because it's confusing even for us, we're just going to talk about the details of Walter's conviction and trial all now. Yeah, because in the book, you do get early on, like, kind of play by play how it is, like, what happened in detail. Mm -hmm. The movie kind of parses this information out throughout as Brian discovers it, which makes sense, you know what I mean, to kind of keep it interesting. But the book does give us... because. The complexities of it are, you know, it gets convoluted. Mm-hmm. And to give you an accurate picture, it just makes more sense to give it to you all at once. Yeah. So we'll start with the murder of Rhonda, an 18-year-old woman who is killed in um, her workplace. And the police have no leads on this. She's shot. Yeah. And no one, they, it, months and months go by and they have... No leads, no suspects, nothing. And they're starting to face a lot of pressure from the community. Yeah, to find to, to find her killer. And before this murder happened, Walter kind of came under the public eye and specifically under the, the um, police chief's eye because he was found out to have been having an affair uh, with a married white woman mm-hmm. in the area. And her husband found out and like they ended up getting divorced and Walter had to be called into court over it. Yeah. And, you know, nothing legally came about it. But suddenly Walter is viewed differently in the community Mm -hmm. and specifically by the police. And And this is where that whole like, is this the 50s really came in? Yeah. Because all of a sudden you see all these like very horrible like quotes from people that Walter said you know the police chief said to him things that were said about him and this affair with this white woman and I mean I'm sure we're showing our ignorance right now by being not like I'm not shocked by this like I'm not trying to pretend to be no but but it's still surprising yeah the fact that it felt like so like community oriented that like as a community they're like we are not okay with this and like we're really gonna like yeah um judge punish him you for this. And, and punish him for it and i mean this goes back to like black men were lynched for stuff like this yeah just for like the vaguest accusation of it yeah so- much less actually having you know a confirmed affair with a white woman so you know it is sort of a continuation of like the history mm-hmm. um but it is really horrifying yeah So the biggest um, changing factor in this murder investigation came about with the arrest of Ralph Myers. So Ralph was arrested for a totally different murder uh, that had happened in like a nearby town. Yeah, which we don't get a lot of information on. I'm I'm like very confused about this other murder. Yeah, because it also (laughs) involved the woman. That Walter had an affair with. Yeah, so like the details, I mean, it kind of doesn't matter. No, it it doesn't. He was probably just trying to keep it simpler. Yeah. But so uh, Ralph is is hauled into jail and I kind of forget how exactly like if he brought it up first or if the police did or but essentially, Ralph quickly finds out that they're more worried about this other murder that happened mm-hmm. in Monroeville. 
and that if he gives them a name for it or pretends to know something about it, it might help him with his current situation. Yeah, being involved in a different murder. And so it quickly comes up that either he knew Walter or, like, the police, like, either planted that name to him. Mm -hmm. I kind of forget. But essentially, it quickly turned into, oh, yes, I was there. And his story, we'll just summarize quickly, but it is the most absurd, convoluted... So Ralph Myers says that Walter McMillan came by in his truck, picked him up at gunpoint, and was like, hey, Ralph Myers, get in the car, uh, and you drive because my arm hurts. (laughs) Even though in this story, Walter had driven to... The city. The city, and had driven away at the end. So like he's like, my arm hurts, I can't drive, even though I just drove here. You drive. And then... He goes to the dry cleaners, goes in the store, and he's like, all right, come back in a few minutes. Ralph Myers goes, buys some cigarettes, mm-hmm. even though he has just been kidnapped, and then he comes back. He was shaken. Needed, he needed a smoke. Comes back to the cleaners to see Walter leaving the dry cleaners, and he can see the body of the girl lying face up on the floor. And Walter gets back in the car, and then they leave. There was also at one point the inclusion of a third party. He says there was another oh, man yeah. with like salt and salt pepper, and pepper hair. hair. Uh, who a is, white man. A white man who is also there for the murder. Who was the mastermind of the plot. Yes. But tellingly, the police never pursue finding who this other person was. Yeah. Like it was a part of his like official testimony that there was another person there. A mysterious man. Yet no one gave a shit, which tells you like either... Like, they're revealing their own racism by only going after the black person, or more obviously, they don't believe the story to begin with and are just using it to pin it on Walter. There was also a sodomy charge in there as well. Oh, my God. That Myers alleged that he was raped by McMillan. And we get the idea pretty early on that Ralph is, like, a talker and kind of, like, not the brightest person either. But he, like, realizes, like, they really want, like... Um, sensational stories. Sensational stories, yes. And, like, so he, you know, comes up with this aspect of the story that, like, he was raped by Walter and that, like, this, like, really gets the police, like, oh, my God, like, fired up about it. Yeah. And, in fact, in the book they say when Walter was arrested, they mention that he's being arrested for sodomy. Yeah, and Walter has no idea what And that he's means. like, what the fuck are you? Like, <laughs> he imagine. He doesn't even know what that means. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he doesn't, you know, he's. <laughs> He's a poorer black man, not as well educated, so he doesn't even know what that is. And when they explain it to him, he's like, what? <laughs> like, for Walter, he's driving home from work. There's a police barricade. They arrest him, and they tell him that he's being charged for sodomy. Like, it's so absolutely ludicrous, but it just shows you how obsessed the police were with, like, solving this crime and pinning it on someone they already had bias against. Yeah, and when they arrest Walter, instead of keeping him in the local jail, which is common when um, someone is awaiting trial, Mm -hmm. so, like, they've arrested you, but they haven't proven if you're innocent or guilty yet, so they'll keep you uh, generally in the local jail or at a nearby prison sometimes. Instead, they put him on death row. So he's not convicted yet, but they put him with the inmates that are condemned to die. And this was, like, such a shady 
like ordeal. Like Brian Stevens, like he's like, I'm not even sure how. It's not even legal. No, he's like, and I'm not sure how the police of chief, the chief of police convinced the jail warden to let him do that. But it was like this just terrible tactic. And like they told the jury that, I believe, on the trial to make him seem worse, which worked. Yeah. Because the jury was like, oh, my God, like he's already on death row Mm -hmm. instead of being like, how is that legal? (laughs) Yeah. And Myers at one point is like, hey, I'm not going to go on record and go into a court and like agree to this testimony because it's ridiculous. And they actually put him on death row. Yeah. And keep him there. And Myers, you know, has a troubled history and he basically breaks on death row. Like it's too much for him. Because they can hear when like when someone's being like uh, executed. Yeah. They take them to the electric chair, which is how they do it in Alabama or at least at this time. Yeah. And the prisoners always protest by hitting their cups against the bars Mm -hmm. and just like the intensity of that moment you know, of every, of the loud noise, the guy going to the electric chair, like all these factors like kind of broke Myers. So like, even though Myers is shitty, is shitty in a way, like really he's just as much more of a puppet and being used and in more ways is probably just like a victim himself. Yeah. And he basically is like, listen, I'll do anything you want. Just get me out of here. Yeah. And so they're like, all right, you testify and we're going to move you to a different prison and you'll just get 30 years and that's it. And so that's what he agrees to. And so he ends up testifying in court. Mm -hmm. You know, Walter's attorney didn't bring up several. Like one of the biggest factors is Walter was at home with like 30 other people. Yeah. uh, During a fish fry when the murder occurred. Yeah. Yeah. But like they don't call anyone to the stand over it or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like not really addressed. And just like the discrepancies and like lack of facts in it's just it's all it's all so insane it's like hard to even like i know begin to discuss how awful it is yeah but he's convicted of murder the jury um wants to sentence him to life without parole and the judge actually overrides the sentence and imposes the death penalty instead. So back to death row, Walter goes. Because judges can fucking do that, at yeah. least in Alabama. And you're like, what the fuck is a jury for then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The judge can just impart his own yeah. sentencing. It's really, it's so messed up. So Brian, in the movie, after gaining at least parts of this story yeah, some uh, information some of it he's enough. reading through in the movie he's reading through the case file and he's like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> i mean he doesn't say that but that's basically what happens that's y- you can read it on his face at least so brian meets with walter again and convinces walter to let him represent him that he can do something for him yeah try to get him a new trial based on multiple factors that yeah. were messed up with his original trial. Mm-hmm. And so Walter kind of like finally agrees to uh, go with it. There's this part in the movie that I really liked. Um, and I don't know if you noticed it, but in kind of the beginning portion, when Brian is first arriving in Alabama in Montgomery, he's driving through all these like white suburban neighborhoods yeah. And you can see all these like white people outside on their lawns. The kids are like running through the sprinklers and people are sitting on their porch. There's all these like flags and it's very like white suburban mm-hmm. upper middle class. And then there's another scene later 
where Brian is driving through a poor black neighborhood. Yes. And you see like the dirt roads, you see like the junked out cars in the neighbor in the in the yards, you see like the families, the kids running around, and it's not even like I don't think it's really showcasing like the poverty versus wealth. I think it's just showing like these very separate communities. Yes. In this state. But I also like as he's driving through the black community, everyone on the porch is waving to him. Yes. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and you can tell looking at Brian that he he has a smile on his face. Like he does feel like a sense welcoming. of belonging and welcoming. Yeah. yeah. So I do like it's not like, oh, these poor, poor, sad people. No. It's nothing like that, but it does like create. Like they do have their own community here. Yeah. It does create a solid divide between the poor, poor black community and the well-off uh, white community in that area. Yeah. There's also another incident uh, we should mention here, and that is, so in the book, Brian is coming home from a day at the office and is sitting in his car listening to his radio and a police car pulls up beside him. And not just like a police car, but like kind of an industrial, like a SWAT team car. And quickly the officers are out of their car banging on his window and they draw their gun on him. With their guns drawn, yeah. And so Brian is startled and like comes out of his car and reading about this was so um, just kind of devastating to read about because he was saying like, you know, he's an educated lawyer, but he said in that moment he was so startled and afraid that he had the instinct at least briefly to run. Yeah. And he's like, no wonder so many people who are younger or, you know, maybe less educated or, you know, what have you run in these situations. Yeah. Because uh, it's a natural, like the fight or flight reflex. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the police hold him at gunpoint and he's trying to talk them down. He's like, it's all right. It's all right. You know, yeah, everything's fine. They illegally search his car and in front of all the neighbors, everyone's outside. And then finally they're like, all right, we didn't find anything. We'll let you go this time. And they leave. And he was so shaken by this encounter that, like, he just couldn't stop thinking about it. He was so upset about it. He's upset. He wished he had reacted more strongly. Yeah. And was just angry with the police and just so many factors. Uh, And it did such a great job of illustrating that, like, even in those situations where that easily could have turned fatal. Yes. Even when it doesn't, it still leaves such a strong impression. And, and it's trauma. It is. It absolutely is. You know, how can you live your life when you know that that could happen to you at any moment when you've done nothing? Yeah. And that's the reality for people of color in this country that, you know, a traffic stop, they could be killed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anything could happen. And this scene plays out in the movie as well, but it's connected more to like, the case he's investigating with Walter. Yeah. Like, it seems like the cops are, like, threatening him on purpose to try to discourage Mm -hmm. him from this uh, case. Which I totally... This is one of those, you know, I wanted to talk about it because it's kind of going into that realm of adaptation, specifically correlating these two things. Yeah. I get why they tie it more into the case he's working on, and or at least creating that idea in the viewer's head that they're pressuring him. Yeah. Uh, But in the book... And, and in real life, you yeah. know what I mean? He's saying it in the book, but it, it is real. <laughs> it is real. Yeah. Uh, I think the inclusion of this part in the story is so impactful 
because it happened to him by chance. Yeah, it's an isolated incident. It's like it could have happened to anyone. Yeah. Anyone black. Like, he's a Harvard graduate who's a lawyer now mm-hmm. and living in... And it, part of it happened because I think he was living in, like, a nicer community. He was yeah. renting an apartment. Mm-hmm. And so they see a black man in a nicer uh, area and find him suspicious now. Yeah. And, I mean, this, is, of course, isn't, like, any kind of a new story or anything. No. But I do like getting that perspective that, like, this one personal story... Because we don't get many of them like this in the book. No. Uh, but it was a, a really good personal story from Brian that kind of like re reaffirmed his drive. Yeah. You know what I mean? And kind of like why he's doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And just showing that like, you know, no matter how far you may come in life, if you're black, you're still vulnerable to like so many factors, yeah. especially by the police and the judicial system. And you're seen as a criminal almost from the start. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the the moment just for me didn't have as much impact in the movie because it just kind of felt like it was ramping up the case revolving around Walter. Yes. Which it probably did for a lot of viewers. You know, it probably made it feel more conspiratorial, which in a lot of ways it is. Yes. Instead of it just being the reality of being a black man in America. Yeah. Yeah. But so I wanted to to bring up that one that one situation because I thought it was really good. Yeah, that's a good thing. A lot of interesting things to talk about here. Uh, let's talk about Herbert. This is a really sad part in the movie. <laughs> it's, I mean. The book is also sad. I mean, real life. <laughs> real life. All of this All book of it is, sad. is pretty sad in most ways. Yeah. Uh, but this one in particular was pretty, pretty devastating. And I think the movie did a good job of translating the actor it. The that plays Herbert is so good. He's excellent. He, uh, he, yeah, he just has like this vulnerability to him. Uh, so Herbert in real life, he was a Vietnam war veteran who just experienced such horrible atrocities and he suffered from severe PTSD. Yeah. And like delusion. So it was clearly like very advanced trauma that he experienced. Um, and he ended up like, you know, finding a girlfriend, you know, moving to the South and then she broke up with him and he like couldn't handle it. He became like infatuated and stalking her. Mm -hmm. And he just, he came up with this like convoluted plot of like, he wanted to put her in danger or seemingly put her in danger and then save her, save her. And so then she'd it, take him back. Yeah. So he built a bomb and put it on her porch and he had it. Apparently he had it timed out where it would go off when she was still inside. She was inside, but like no one was around and it mm-hmm. wasn't like a huge like explosion. No. But after he set it on the porch, uh, two young local girls came on the porch, found the box, and um, tampered with it or messed with it, and it set it off, and it killed uh, one of the two girls and severely injured the other. Mm -hmm. So he was put on death row for this. But, you know, in his trial, no one brought up the fact that he had severe PTSD from his time in the war Mm -hmm. and that he was suffering from, you know, mental delusions and was, like, honestly mentally unfit to stand yeah. for trial. Um, so for a while, Brian is trying everything he can do to get um, him, you know, released from death row. Like, you know, Herbert kept saying, like, in the book and in the movie, like, I am guilty of what 
I did. Like, I mm-hmm. know I did wrong. Um, and Brian's mission here is to be like, yes, he did wrong, but he doesn't deserve to die. Yeah. Uh, so they, he's trying all he can. And it, it's crazy reading more specifically about like this process, but like until like the minutes before he's executed, Brian's trying to get something passed with a judge yeah. to postpone the execution. A stay of execution, I think, yeah. is what it's called. I'm not entirely sure whether that means it's just postponed or like um, called off altogether. But like mm-hmm. it's really this like down to the wire situation of trying to save him. Yeah. And unfortunately for Herbert, they get nothing passed or granted by the judge in time. And uh, Brian agreed to go down and see him. Like on the, you know, the night he's being executed. So he drives down and makes it. And there's just a really, really sad scene that plays out uh, in in the film and in the book, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Where Herbert's just like kind of the one thing he said that really sticks with you is that he said, everyone's been nicer to me today than my entire stay on death row or since I was found guilty. Well, and he says too, more people have asked me if there's anything I need or how they can oh, yeah. help me today, then they have my whole life. And, you know, his life even before Vietnam was very like impoverished and tragic. And so you see someone that the system has failed over and over and over. And here, as he's about to die, people are like, what can I get you? Do you want like some lunch? You know, trying to make his last day like valuable when his whole life, no one cared. Yeah. And it's just as like, it, it it's almost like satirical or like the irony of it is like so extreme that it's like, hey, I know we're about to kill you, but like, can I get you a sandwich? Yeah. Like, what world do we live in? I know. It's like some kind of like freaky, weird. It's like farcical. It's, yeah. It, yeah. It, 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 it's so absurd. But this is reality. This is, you know, what happens when someone's being executed you know we give them a last meal yeah and it's like okay <laughs> like thanks Well, no one wants to feel like they're being a jerk to someone who's dying well and i think it really reinforces that like every like so many people feel like they're just like a small part of a system that they're just like following orders essentially you know what yeah. i mean between yeah. prison guards and uh lawyers who are like assigned to the cases and getting paid very little to the judges who oftentimes have to pass down sentences that have minimum you know sentences it's like if you're accused of this you have to get this you have to get life in prison you know what i mean so even a lot of judges are have their hands tied Mm -hmm. and and it just kind of shows you how not only convoluted the system is but how ineffective it is and how impersonal it is and how like nothing Hardly any factors are taken into account. Yeah. Um, so I think Herbert's, you know, and we do see him walked to the electric chair and um, Brian's there when he's executed. And yeah. it's just a very um, unsettling and, and shocking moment to actually see what the stakes are for Walter in the movie. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And just to kind of like see what happens to like the majority of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's a great scene in the movie where... Walter and Eva are together after this has happened and or I'm sorry not Walter Brian and (laughs) Eva are together after this happened and Brian is really upset um and it's this really emotional moment for him and Michael B. Jordan does a great job 
in this moment. Yeah. Kind of showing like what it's like to watch someone be killed. You know what I mean? Someone that you tried to save, someone that you were like doing everything that you could to try to stop this from happening and you weren't able to. And to be so powerless. Yeah. And he's like the one with like possibly the most chance at helping them, but he still feels like tied up by the system. And I think Herbert's case is one example of, uh, you know, how this system of not only execution, but imprisonment just hyper targets the most vulnerable people in our community. Yeah. And I think the book does a lot to give like you so many examples of different cases, different situations. Yes. You do find out a l- about a lot of different other cases he's working on mm-hmm. while he's working on Walter's case. Yeah. And it's really cool because we find out a lot about the work that the Equal Justice Initiative does beyond just helping inmates on death row. Um, we talk a lot in the book about uh, children and the cases of children who um, many of these um, convicted criminals were like 13 and 14 when they committed crimes. And Brian Stevenson talks about how they are often convicted as adults, mm-hmm. sent to adult prisons, and often given either life without parole or put on the death penalty. Yeah, we hear about one uh, child, Ian Manuel. Uh, Ian was involved in a robbery and shot a woman who, uh, but she didn't die. No. And he was sentenced to life in prison. Without parole. Without parole. And then because he was so young. I think he was 14. They put him in solitary confinement to protect him. Yeah. And he became just desperately depressed. And they kept extending his solitary confinement because of attempted suicides Mm -hmm. or acting out. Like, and he was basically in solitary confinement for years and years. He was in solitary confinement for 18 years. Which, when you think about, like, the psychological damage, especially when you begin at age 13 or 14, um, when there's so much still in development. Oh, like, the, the social interaction you're losing out on and mm-hmm. just the, the human contact, uh, it, it's just horrifying to think about. Something and- that kept coming up, too, with a lot of these children's cases that are a lot talked about in the book are that, like, the trauma that they experienced, whether it was um, rape that they faced or um, just the violence of the prisons actually ended up affecting them physically. Um, a couple of the inmates described actually developed um, MS. Yeah, yeah. Or other mental and physical disabilities because of what they experienced in prison, which is really sad. It is. And I mean, so many of these stories, uh, Brian uh, Stevenson takes the time to give you their background, which oftentimes is just Full of abuse. Yes. Uh, and just like neglect. Neglect and just being growing up in like really difficult environments. And they're still so young when they commit these crimes that like they're not mentally developed completely. Yeah. And so, you know, there's just so many factors that go into this that to convict them as adults uh, is horrendous and to take away their entire future. Yeah. And I just wanted to list some facts, some fun facts fun for facts. everyone. It wasn't until 2002 that the U.S. Supreme Court banned the death penalty for people with mental retardation. So before that, you could kill someone if they had a mental disability. Yeah. And then it wasn't until 2005 that the U.S. Supreme Court banned the death penalty 
for um, crimes committed when they were children. So if a child committed a crime and was either, you know, could either be killed like when they were still a child or like years later, because sometimes it takes years for them to actually like kill them. Um, But it wasn't until 2005 that that was like, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill children. Yeah. Maybe don't do that. Oh, God. And and Brian Stevenson was uh, helped take certain issues up to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Such as uh, banning the death penalty for mm-hmm. uh, children and then also later banning life imprisonment yes. for children. In 2010 and 2012, the Supreme Court finally banned um, the sentence of life without, without parole for juveniles because um, it was deemed cruel and unusual punishment for children, crimes committed as children to you know, affect them for the rest of their lives. Once again, it's like, is this the 70s or yeah. like, is this decades ago? Because it feels like it is. Nope. But the lack of progress is is truly baffling. And you find out just there's so many stories about like the different types of people who are impacted. Women was another one. Yeah. Specifically women who suffer from miscarriages. Yeah. And are accused of then killing their child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just, you know, this the goes men- back to that whole like abortion ban on women thing. Yeah. And then, like we said, the mentally disabled people suffering from PTSD, just these systems just are like laser focused on targeting these kinds of people, which is just why it's so especially broken. Like we don't help anyone. Mm-hmm. We just punish them. And that the prison system has become our catch all yes. solution for so many problems we have. Absolutely. I do like in the book that these chapters are kind of interspersed with Walter's story. Yeah. So we have Walter's kind of overall story, but kind of in between finding out things, developments in Walter's case, we have chapters that focus on, you know, children in the uh, criminal justice system. We have chapters on the mentally disabled in the criminal Mm -hmm. justice system. We have all of these other examples about the work that the Equal Justice Initiative is doing and also like the flaws in the criminal justice system. Yeah, it's, and it keeps your mind on the fact that, like, he's not just working on Walter's case. Yeah. Like, which. He is busy. He is super busy, which, like, if you're watching the movie, you kind of, like, get the sense he's, like, focused on that solely. Yeah. Which is, like, no, he's juggling, like, 50 balls in the air at once. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just crazy the amount of stuff that he was trying to manage to do mm-hmm. all around the same time. So, back to Walter. In the book and movie, we meet the new district attorney who wasn't involved in Walter's conviction and his trial, uh, but is still kind of upholding the system and yeah. the what the jury had decided. And his name is Chapman. And then we also meet this slimy sheriff, Tate, who was kind of instrumental in getting Walter convicted in the first place. Yeah, I mean... I think it, it feels like that he was the most responsible for crafting yes. like the story from the dude. Myers. Myers, thank you. <laughs> crafting that story and that the DA at the time had been like, yeah, sure, that sounds fine. Yeah. So he was one of the huge crucial pieces, I think, to like this false conviction. And now Chapman, the new DA, was like not involved, but is still upholding this clearly bogus Evidence, Because they never did find anyone else for the crime. And I think it would be on Chapman's head if they let him go. Yeah. Uh, not to excuse what he's doing, but I think that was probably his uh, motivation. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? For going along with this. Yeah. 
And around this time, in the book, actually, we get a phone call from Myers, mm-hmm. where Myers calls Brian Stevenson and basically says, hey, listen, I'm in prison now, and I'm going through like this like recovery program, and I want to confess that I lied. Yeah. Like, oh, that whole time I was lying, I am ready to like recant my testimony and tell the truth now. And so... Brian's like, uh, yeah. Great. (laughs) He, uh, he's kind of warned specifically by Walter to be wary of him. Yeah. But he goes to meet him and he's just like this character, like not to put it, not to, not to like excuse what he's doing, but like he's so eccentric Mm -hmm. and he's played in the movie by Tim Blake Nelson. And this role is so perfect for him. Oh my God. As an actor. And if you think watching the movie that he might be embellishing characteristics, uh, when you see the real dude, he is not at all. No, it's like spot on from like the way he talks, the the lip mouth thing. Yeah, yeah it's all like the blinking. <laughs> yeah, it's like spot on. If you see like an actual interview with this guy. That's exactly how he acted. In the movie, Brian has to, like, convince him to, like, tell the truth and to testify. Yeah. And to say that he lied. And then we get this whole... This is where Ian and Adina do not understand the law. (laughs) (laughs) As As much as Brian Stevenson tried to explain it to us. Brian tried to teach us the law, Ian, but we did not learn. (laughs) Uh, So, essentially, they're having a kind of a courtroom trial but not really but it's to present new evidence so the judge will grant a new actual trial in front of a jury yes so it's really just they're presenting to the judge to the judge only yeah so but it's basically it is definitely like a trial in the sense that they have people like testify and present all this new evidence yeah and and the stakes are extremely high it's like a very significant uh, situation. Yeah. So they have the trial, uh, the, the not trial. It's not a trial, Ian. <laughs> it's not a trial. <laughs> we are not lawyers. But it's, but it's totally a trial. <laughs> <laughs> they have the not trial. They bring in Myers, who there's kind of more built around him being hesitant to recant his original testimony. In but, the movie. In the movie, but eventually comes around to admitting that it was all a lie. In the book, in the in real life, in the book of real life, uh, he was much more quick to be like, yeah, no, none of it was true. None yeah. of it at all. They have other people testify to other witnesses that say, you know, Walter was actually here. People that, you know, basically ref- deny. What's the word? Refute. Refute. Is yeah. Is that the word? I think. People that like completely refute all the claims that they made against Walter to prove that he was guilty and basically like, oh, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. And this is not true. So it's not just Meyer's testimony. Yeah. But it's like completely dismantling all the like threads, like the few threads they had to connect Walter to this case. Exactly. Like there already wasn't like any evidence uh, except for the bullshit they put around it. And this whole situation was Stevenson just like karate chopping yeah, all like, of it apart. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. <laughs> so they go through the trial and the not trial. The not trial. <laughs> and then the verdict is passed. And the movie understandably gives it more of a dramatic moment. In yes. real life, 
it was just like a document. They just got it in the mail. Yeah, it was just like, here you go. Mailed. Just going to post mail this. (laughs) Send it by post. Uh, In the movie, it's like a verdict passed down by the judge in real life. Yeah. Where essentially he's like, well, really, Myers could be being pressured now to give. Say that he lied. Yeah. Which to me is believable enough that I'm not going to grant you a new trial. Yeah. The scene is very dramatic in the movie because, and you can definitely feel the same way because it seems like they presented all of this evidence and to have it completely just like disregarded by the judge is like, eh, it doesn't really matter. Um, Feels devastating to Walter and his family. And his son actually like kind of stands up in court and is like yelling at the judge and is basically like, you can't do this to my father. Like, don't do this. And they like tackle him and handcuff him. And this isn't apparently an episode that actually happened in Walter's original trial. Yeah. So I appreciate that like they're pulling from still reality, like even though that yeah. didn't happen at the even though this trial like verdict didn't exist, the not trial verdict. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that didn't happen then. They're still pulling from like real life. Yeah. And for me, this is such a significant moment in both the the book and the film because in so many ways, it feels like kind of this investigative story, like uncovering the truth yes. and figuring it out to like set Walter free. And in reality, this is just dropping the bombshell that like we've already known, but it's not that no one knew what happened. Yes. It's the system that is like, we don't care. Turning a blind eye. Yeah. And we still don't care. Mm-hmm. And it's just like maybe more shocking how much they don't care. Uh, but, and how much they're willing to admit they don't care. Yeah, but like really everything up until now has played out like, you know, putting the pieces together and figuring everything out. And like once we can present all the evidence and everyone will have to see. Yeah. And then it's just like, no, it doesn't matter because that's not what the, the issue is. The issue is we didn't know he was innocent. The issue is that like we, we want decided to, that he was. Yeah, guilty. we want to put him to death. Mm-hmm. And so I. I think this point is kind of driven home well in both versions where it's just kind of like that reality kind of comes crashing down on you Mm -hmm. as a viewer and reader of the story. Yeah, they have another plan. They're going to take it to the Alabama Supreme Court next, but it's still a very devastating moment in both the book and the movie to have this denied. Mm hmm. I want to take a brief aside here and talk a little bit about the prison guard in the film, which is kind of this interesting another thing where it's like taking parts from the book and kind of like repurposing them. Yeah. Because we get this prison guard who, when Brian first arrives at death row, this really just kind of racist prison guard gives him a lot of shit and actually strip searches him to allow him access to the prison. Mm -hmm. And it's this really embarrassing moment. That's really like tough situation for Brian to have to like go through. Cause he's like a lawyer and like, he's there in a suit and tie. No, this is like not protocol, but it's this guard kind of like going off on his own. And the interesting thing is that like in the book, this happened like it does in the movie, but Brian is actually there for another um, case and this guard is actually escorts this um, death row inmate to another like courtroom hearing. Mm-hmm. And so he's actually there when Brian is testifying. Yes. And witnesses it. And then later, Brian goes back to visit that man in, pr- in prison again. Mm-hmm. And he runs into this guard. And suddenly the guard is much nicer to him. Yeah. And he 
finally admits to Brian, he's like, listen, I heard when you were testifying for Avery, this man on death row, and you talked about what he faced when he was coming up in the foster system and like the abuse and neglect and, you know, mistreatment that he faced. And he was like, I was also in the foster care system. And I thought that like everything that I went through, you know, I thought that was all behind me, but I've, I've realized lately that it isn't. Yeah, and, and Brian is just like, <laughs> he's just like so thrown off by this. He almost yeah. like doesn't even know how to react. But I do think it's this great, it is this nice moment where it's like, it's almost like too over the top to be believable. Like, I do believe it. Yeah. But this like ultra racist security guard suddenly being like, wow, I actually like see you as a person. I'm like self-reflecting for the first time maybe in my life on yeah. like the trauma I've gone through and uh, but I do think it it shows that a lot of these people have more in common, you know what I mean, like than uh, they might believe or yeah. want to admit, you know, like people like him probably grow up to only see race and to, you know, be prejudiced based on that. And like, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, view black people as being below them. But in reality, uh, if you're lower class, you're lower class. And like a lot of those issues you go through. Uh, are going to be the same. Yeah. And so it was a really interesting moment. The movie has that initial moment and then kind of takes it to a different place. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to bring this up for this reason, because, like, I remember watching the movie before getting to this part in the book and kind of being like, I don't know if this works for me. Yeah. Because after this initial scene, we get another moment where the guard is setting up chairs for the execution. Mm-hmm. And it's mentioned that this is his first time being present for one. Yeah, and he's clearly clearly upset kind of by it or unsettled yeah. at least. And then following the execution, he becomes kinder towards specifically Walter. Yeah. He gives him a moment to talk to his family after the not trial. Mm-hmm. And later he like gives him some photographs that were clearly like passed on to him. Yeah. And I do like the acts that he does. Like they're not given too much attention. Like he doesn't have like an arc per se. No. But my biggest issue is that, like... Why? Yes. And the setup of him... I mean, because it wasn't... It would make more sense if he was, like, a jerk to Walter at the beginning. Yeah. But he wasn't. He was a dick to... Brian. Brian. Like, he was horrible to him by strip-searching him. And, like, it really came across as being, like, like sociopathic almost. Like, yeah. the way he went about it. Yeah. That I'm like, for him to suddenly be like, oh, no, maybe I, w- I was wrong. You know, I'm like. Y- yeah, there was no reason for him to change. No. And like specifically changing towards Walter. Because mm-hmm. we didn't see him being mean to Walter before that. Yeah. Which was interesting. So I, I want to bring this up because this is like just a case of like where the director was pulling something from the book. But it's not communicated clearly to a movie audience. No. Yeah. And it's not reworked, I don't think, in the best way that it could be. Mm -hmm. Like, I would rather, instead of keeping that scene of him being strip searched, even though it's a good reflection of what Brian is facing. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make sense for where that security guard goes from there. It would make more sense to show him being prejudiced towards Walter. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, we're an adaptation podcast. Yeah, we gotta gotta talk about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, in Walter's case now, they actually get a 60-minute spot. 
Yes. Which is interesting. And we're going to post the actual 60 Minutes piece. It's on YouTube. Yeah, where they cover um, Walter and kind of raise questions about whether he's guilty or not. Oh, and it's great because they interview Chapman, <laughs> who's the DA, and he is he comes across as so dumb and shitty in it. Oh, uh, he's I so think slimy. Even back then, people were like, ooh. <laughs> well, and I love in the book, he talks about how the media, because this was another factor, the way the media was covering the story, they were, the media was so quick, like the local papers, to yeah. jump on Walter And Brian was like, if they release Walter, even if we do get him out, everyone hates him. And so they had to figure out a way to get two people and convince them publicly, like to publicly exonerate of his innocence, Walter. And he was like, even though people read and believe the local paper, they also believe 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. Like it was very popular in around that time. And he was like, I think if they did a piece, people would like absolutely buy into it more yeah yeah and it works it actually creates a lot of public pressure on Mm -hmm. chapman and the community and people are questioning and it eventually leads to um chapman kind of opening another investigation and trying to find out more about the case and basically proving that walter could not have done it Yeah, he's like, maybe. (laughs) You know when I publicly said I'd be fine with him being murdered? Yes, on national TV. (laughs) Maybe I was a little hasty. He's getting calls from people that are like, are you that shitty guy on TV? (laughs) I love in the movie they're watching 60 Minutes and his wife. Kind of gives him the side eye. (laughs) (laughs) Like, am I married to this dude? Yeah. So essentially they, it goes to the Alabama Supreme Court and they grant a retrial. Is that correct? No, um, they're meeting to determine if they should have a retrial. Okay, and that's where and Brian is like, I propose that all charges are dropped against Walter. And then uh, the DA Chapman is like, we agree. Yeah. So they drop all charges against him, and he's free. He's free in a in a kind of just shocking moment of like, I don't like. It, I don't know, compared to like this big not trial that they had. I know. Where suddenly it's just like, okay, we have to go to court to just like almost like a technicality. Yeah. And then it's like, yeah, okay, he can go home now. All right, you're good. I know. And I loved to reading about this moment in the book because uh, he was thinking about how or Brian was thinking about how like he was angry. Yeah. Like he thought he'd be happy, obviously, and he was, but also he was just so angry because it was like... It almost seems simple at the end. Yeah. That everyone was suddenly like, yeah, you're right, this is ridiculous. And he's like, how long did it take to convince you of this and how many other people are facing the same fate? Mm-hmm. So I, I did like getting that perspective from the book on like how he felt because you're like, yeah, it makes sense that he'd feel that way. Yeah. And... This is kind of where the movie ends. So we get a closing moment of Brian giving uh, a talk to, I believe, the Supreme Court. Yes. It's implied with Mm -hmm. Walter kind of like, oh, you know, Walter is everyone's free and happy. Uh, We get a speech from Brian kind of like overlapping the end. It's like one of two speeches. He he gets to give like a whole closing speech at the end of the not trial. Mm -hmm. And these were the moments where I was a little bit like, eh. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, not that I disagreed with anything he was saying, obviously, 
but it just kind of felt like obviously it's a courtroom movie. His closing statements have to be this strong moment. A dramatic scene. Exactly. But like it's so many of the smaller scenes in the movie that impacted me more. Yeah. Like less of the on the nose. Let me explain explicitly like these issues. Mm -hmm. Like there's a part early on when he's driving to the prison and he passes a bunch of prisoners doing yard work while prison guards are on horses. Yeah. Overseeing them. Yeah. I think they're picking cotton actually. Are they literally picking cotton? I think so. Oh, well, they did do that. Yeah. I remember reading that in the book. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I just thought they were like landscaping, basically. Yeah. Uh, but regardless, like the imagery is still hits you so hard. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just a moment that you're like, oh, my God, this is modern day slavery. Yes. Or like the, the small moments where it's talked about how Harper Lee came from Monroeville. Yeah. And just kind of like the silliness of like they to take kill a mockingbird. Yeah. That they take so much pride in. Atticus Finch as a character who didn't even exist. Yeah. Yet they're shitting all over this real life person who's actually trying to like do good. Yes. It was all these smaller moments that I really loved in the movie. Mm -hmm. And so by contrast, like getting this like big speech from the character of Brian in the movie just felt like. It fell a little flat. It did for me at least. Yeah. And in the book we get a lot more information about what happened to Walter after he was freed. Because, of course, he was super happy. You know, he was able to, like, kind of start his life again. But, I mean, his wife left him. Um, She couldn't handle being with him after all of the stuff about his affair. And it was probably also really difficult for her to be with someone that had been through so much trauma as well. Yeah. Um, So she left... And then Walter ends up facing, you know, some physical issues. He doesn't have a lot of money. And um, later on in life, he actually gets early onset dementia as well. Caused by trauma. Caused by trauma. And there's this really great interview that actually some Swedish journalists interview Walter about, like, the death penalty and his time on death row. And he's giving this interview and he's talking and he seems fine. And all of a sudden he kind of breaks down. And I just want to read a portion from the book. So, he became uncharacteristically emotional. They put me on death row for six years. They threatened me for six years. They tortured me with the promise of execution for six years. I lost my job. I lost my wife. I lost my reputation. I lost my... I lost my dignity. He was speaking loudly and passionately and looked to be on the verge of tears. I lost everything, he continued. He calmed himself and tried to smile, but it didn't work. He looked soberly at the camera. It's rough. Yeah, that's. And the book makes a point of like that Brian would go around with Walter to speak uh, at events, like speak about his time in prison, like on death row, everything he went through. And he always spoke with like a lot of control, like, you know, spoke very well about it, you know, was always very open and honest. And this was the first time, maybe it's because Brian wasn't with him. Yeah. Maybe it's like the, that the early onset dementia was starting to like make him lose a little bit of that control a bit. Yeah. Uh, but just kind of like suddenly that curtain is pulled back a little bit and you really see how Walter felt about all of it, like deep down. Yeah. And how much it affected his life. I mean, he was freed, but like that kind of trauma leaves its mark. And for him, you know, he still had it a great life afterwards, but he also had a lot of pain and trauma that he wasn't able to shake even 
you know, after being released. Yeah, it's, um, it, I, and I think it's so significant. Like I, I get why the movie wouldn't touch on this yeah. necessarily, even though I think it, I think they could have in a way, because uh, I get like, yes, it is this triumphant moment when he's released and it is great. But like, in a way, the book talks about this where Walter and Brian would get pissed off sometimes because people would use his case as an example to be like, well, you see, the system works. Yeah. And you're like, um, he got off like, <laughs> you know, he was, you know, he was wrongfully uh, convicted, but he he was released. So the system works. And, yeah. you know, you could almost make that not. I don't think you could make that argument after seeing this movie, but it does leave you with a more happy ending where you're like, well, that was great. And like, I can kind of forget about these issues now. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think this leads us into our discussion about which one we think is better. I think it does because, and we, this isn't our first time doing uh nonfiction, you know, we've done the glass castle, which was also by this director. Yeah. Uh, but it does bring about kind of a different conversation because, you know, you're talking about reality. Like, you know, we say the book, but you're talking about the real life events. Yeah. And those obviously won't always naturally translate to film. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like you expect things to be reworked a little bit, restructured a bit. Definitely. And I think this movie does a good job of like keeping mostly very, very factual. Yes. Uh, while creating a compelling narrative that like feels like it has a good flow to it. Definitely. But then you're also talking about, well, you're also reading the story. You're also consuming the stories for kind of two different purposes. Mm-hmm. The book, you're kind of more like it's for the information yeah. in a way. Like you are compelled by Tell the characters. Tell me something new I want to learn. Yeah. But like, yeah, you want to learn. You want to learn about the corruption of the system. You want to learn about these topics. And yes, you care about the people, but really so much of what you're getting from it is information. Yeah. And you do watch movies for similar reasons sometimes, mm-hmm. but there is more of an element of entertainment as well. Yeah. The purpose seems more to um, emotionally <clears throat> captivate you. Yeah. Uh, to get you to care about it first and foremost through these people. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, this easily could have been a documentary. Oh, definitely. You know what I mean? And that would probably be the most like, effective and yeah possibly and translatable from the source material in terms of like you could have told the story like in its unvarnished like entirety Mm -hmm. through a documentary and would have been very effective too yeah so you know you're kind of talking about what the purpose of each story medium is so for that reason like it, it is harder to compare them in this way but i i don't hesitate to say i enjoyed uh the book more yeah i agree i think in terms of my experience, even though it took me a lot longer to read the book, obviously, and it was very emotionally upsetting at times, I thought it was so well written. The information was so important and well stated. Mm-hmm. And the book does really balance telling Walter's story, but also telling the stories of so many other people impacted by our faulty criminal justice system. And I mean, I think it's a must read, honestly. Like, If you haven't read it, um, I would really highly consider adding it to your list. It was so good. It was so impactful. It's so important to read about. And 
I don't want to guilt anyone into reading this book because I'm not about guilting people into reading, no. but I would really highly recommend it. It's excellent. It just is so enlightening. I mean, you know, not just on the issue of death row, uh, but the broader issues of the judicial system and prejudice and like just like so many and, and not just that, but also like the importance of of hope yes and the importance of trying to solve these issues mm-hmm. and not just letting them go you know B- Brian Stevenson is definitely someone to be admired and looked up to absolutely uh, for all the work he's done and hearing his perspective on things I think he talks about things like perfectly like he's not afraid to be I don't want to say philosophical but to an extent when he's talking about the more abstract ideas of like you know hope and yeah uh what they mean and their significance he's able to talk about those things well without like being overly sappy mm-hmm. which i think is very effective he always feels like very earnest in what he's talking about so yeah so i'd like to propose instead of lightning round that maybe i'll just talk a little bit more about the equal justice initiative yes it is <laughs> cover to credits famous equal justice initiative information lightning lightning round. round. <laughs> so uh definitely look up the equal justice initiative you can just uh google eji and it should come up for you um they are the organization that brian stevenson founded in the late 80s and still exists today they're going strong they have overturned um over 100 uh death penalty convictions got people off death row because of their work they helped to have those Supreme Court bans on children being killed yeah. and children facing life imprisonment without parole as well. They do really, really amazing work. And they also focus on confronting the terrible racial history in America. The Equal Justice Initiative has fought to erect uh, plaques and monuments in uh, Alabama to commemorate lynchings, to commemorate um, the slave trade. And Brian talks about this in his book a little bit. He talks about how there are so many monuments mm. to uh, the Confederacy and the Civil War. Yeah. And like recognizing all these Confederate war heroes and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, there need to be monuments to what really happened here, to when people were sold at slave auctions, to places where innocent black people were lynched. So he really has fought for recognition of that. And they also have a museum in Montgomery about uh, lynching in America there that they uh, set up. That's amazing. Yeah. So the work that they do is so amazing on so many fronts. Um, really trying to represent uh, the people that have no representation and that are the poorest and the the least among us. And we're going to post some stuff on Patreon for you to look at. I'll definitely post a link to the Equal Justice Initiative. Check that out. Um, There's also that 60 Minutes talk that featured Walter McMillan. And then there's a TED Talk that Brian Stevenson gave in 2012, I believe, that is also really excellent about uh, justice and injustice in America. So we'll put all that on Patreon. Definitely mm-hmm. check all that out. And I think that ends our Equal Justice Initiative lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you uh, so much for listening to this episode. If you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash cover to credits pod we release bonus episodes to all of our patrons. Yes. Uh, where we talk about additional adaptations 
two episodes we cover. So we recently did one on the 1994 Little Women Mm -hmm. after we did an episode on the new adaptation by Greta Gerwig. We also release episode schedules as well as taking your suggestions to the very top uh, (laughs) of our upcoming list if you are a patron with a request. So if, you know, you like the podcast and you want to consider supporting it more, uh, we greatly appreciate our patrons at any and all levels. Yes. And if you can't support us on Patreon, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps um, other folks find our podcast, which is amazing. So um, if you like what you hear, please give us uh, a rating or review. And you can find us on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on t- Twitter. You can email us at coveredcreditspod, gmail.com. We're everywhere. Just yeah. find us. You'll, you'll, you'll find us. <laughs> you'll figure it out. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.